Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Art for everyone. Isn't that just like caviar for the masses? The trouble with the classicist, he looks at a tree. That's all he sees, he paints a tree. The trouble with the classicist, he looks at the sky. He doesn't ask why, he just paints a sky. Art that's not for everyone is self-indulgent and elitist. Art made for the masses is just commercial tripe. Can't art be accessible without sacrificing quality? Can't art be cognitively challenging without being elitist? Sometimes artists have goals they can only pursue at the expense of accessibility. Our guest is Catherine Abel from the University of Oxford, author of Fiction, a Philosophical Analysis. I don't think difficulty in and of itself is valuable. The Arts for All? Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Should artworks be accessible to everyone? Is it elitist to make art that's difficult to understand? Or is popular art just trash? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ray Briggs. We're coming to you from our respective living rooms via the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ray teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today we're asking, are the arts for all of us? Oh, I definitely think the arts should be for everyone. Like, like I think we need to subsidize museums so everyone can get in for free. Too many people get excluded because they can't afford those exorbitant ticket prices. That's a start, but it's not the only kind of exclusion there is. Let's say we implement your generous ticket policy and, and now everyone can go to the museum. What are they going to do once they're in there? Well, I don't know. Look at the pictures like everyone else. But how are they going to understand them if they haven't been to snooty high schools and fancy colleges like you? You need to know a ton of stuff about art history just to make sense of half of the paintings. Who has time and money for that? Well, I mean, that's not unique to art. I think about video games, rock music, or even, even memes. I mean, I'm a middle-aged guy, and I often have trouble understanding my students' jokes. There's nothing snooty or fancy about memes. It's just that if you don't get the reference, you don't get the joke. <laughs> Gee, Josh, that's a real galaxy brain take. What's a galaxy brain? <laughs> my point exactly. No, my point exactly. Lots of domains require background knowledge, memes, medicine, philosophy, even sports. Sometimes conversations just get a little, what's the word, inside baseball. There's nothing special about art in this regard. Well, okay, maybe. But there is something special about art. And that's that art gives you cultural cred. Knowing lots of baseball stats might be fun, but knowing who painted Guernica, that shows that you're sophisticated. Well, oh, even if that's true, I don't think the solution is making all painting simple. Why not make our education free as well as museum tickets? Let's level up, not level down. Ha, so you're agreeing with me. You want all artworks to be accessible. Well, that's not exactly what I'm saying. I actually think we'd lose something really important if there were no challenging artworks, artworks out there in the world. Oh, please. What would you lose? Your smug self-satisfaction? <laughs> Touché. No, that's not what I'm talking about. I, I mean things like 
the ability to get us thinking really hard about important questions or, or to expand our horizons and challenge our perceptions. That's fine and dandy, Professor Landy. But how do you make those benefits available to everyone? Well, think about it this way. When artworks challenge you, it's not always because there's something you don't know. Oftentimes it's just because there's something they want you to do. I mean, think about Breaking Bad. That show asks us to make some pretty difficult moral judgments. But, you know, it's a really popular show. You don't need to have gone to a snooty prep school to enjoy it. You know, maybe not, but still, getting to watch TV for hours on end is a luxury. It's not for people who have to work three jobs. It's for people with lots of time on their hands. So what, you're saying every single artwork should be immediately clear in every way to every human being? Finally, you're getting it. Art should be for everyone, no matter where they come from or what they do for a living. Every human being deserves to have a life rich with aesthetic experiences. To feel that special sense of community. To have their imagination stimulated. To be raised above the mundane. Every human being? Why stop there? How about cats and dogs? Don't you want Blossom to be raised above the mundane? Funny you should ask. Actually, there is a whole world of art for dogs out there. We sent our roving philosophical reporter, Holly J. McDeed, to find out about it. She files this report. Before you judge, meet Dr. Robert White Adams. He goes by Dr. Bob. He's a vet based in Somerset, England. And a few years ago, was involved in a project where we created a art exhibition or an art museum for dogs. In preparation for the exhibit, he taught the artists involved to experience the world like dogs do, through a dimmer color palette and a profound sense of smell. They're smelling what yesterday and three days ago and a week ago was. So their world that they build inside their heads has a whole extra dimension that we don't experience minute by minute. They have time built into their, their vision of the world in the form of smell. The exhibition featured an open car window simulator that blew out aromas like old shoes, giant-sized dog bowls, paintings in colors to match a dog's color spectrum, dancing water jets that leapt from one dog bowl to the next. The dogs appeared to be enjoying themselves. I had my own dog with me. She was a nine-year-old retriever then. And you can't help thinking there must be some doggy equivalent of bafflement intrigue. Most people thought it was kind of a joke. So I tried to take a look at it from a more serious standpoint. Concepcion Cortez Zulueta is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Malaga in Spain. And I usually work around the presence and identity of animals in contemporary art. Her eyebrows raised when she heard that the exhibition was billed as the world's first for dogs. She's the author of papers such as The Seagull Stole My Camera and My Shot, overlapping metaphorical and physical distances in the human-animal camera triad. So she knows her stuff. She can think of at least two art exhibitions for dogs that took place back in the 70s. One was held in a seaside village in Spain. Two artists held the exhibition with their dog, Chispas Luis. He was there all the time. And so the dog became naturally involved in the collaboration. They made music together. Paintings paid tribute to sausages and old boots. And at times, the artists began to act like canines. Because they were like territorial artists, like trying to uh, win the other one. 
In a separate show, one of the artists later recorded the sounds of sad dogs howling for the public. The humans enjoyed the show, but the artists recommended the canines stay away because the dogs were like aware of the meaning more than their human companions. And many decades later, the humans haven't stopped creating exhibits for four-legged creatures. Jessica Dawson runs an exhibit and a concept called Dogumenta, with Micah Scalin and a Morky named Rocky. When Dawson moved to New York City, she was overwhelmed by the artwork, not Rocky. He was unleashed into the gallery space and went straight up to an artwork, sniffed it, looked around, just gave his whole body and all his senses and energy to the work around him. And I felt that I'd lost some of that. It was clear she had a lot to learn from Rocky. The work in their first show followed in the tradition of art history, like one sculptural piece that was simple and blocky. It had a grid, a light blue, very, very delicate grid of paint, pigment, uh, that was reminiscent of Agnes Martin, another minimalist artist. So these are clear references. This is more for the humans. These are references for humans. But in this show, these references are obsolete because it's a show for dogs. During the day, the pups began to mark the piece. And by mark, she means mark. This created a kind of drip. Almost a Jackson Pollock drip at that point because the pigment like dripped down and this was all created by the pups that came through the exhibition. The piece changed over time, like the kind of interactive artwork very much in vogue these days. You could say it had similarities to Warhol's oxidation paintings. But more importantly, everyone was welcome to enjoy this space. People who had never been to art shows before showed up with their dogs. Lizards, turtles, and even cats showed up. It might seem ridiculous, but sometimes it's necessary to be transported away from the human world. And I'm grateful to Rocky and all his four-legged friends it for is... giving us that. I want to for Philosophy Talk, I'm Holly Jimmy-Teed. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org.